This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, what do we got for a replay in this show? Yeah, we got a great show again. I tell you, I'm just trying to accommodate our listeners and talking to a lot of our listeners and my customers who really give me a good bit of information that I can interpret and then get it back out to you. Talking about homeowners, why are these people that are referring other contractors that really have no clue what they're referring? And it's the contractors themselves. I always say the American contractor is gone. Otis is a salesman and subs. When people hear me say on the show, the SNS is for our new listeners, it's salesmen and subs. That's all you're getting. When I started my business years ago, there was a lot of the owners that were physically doing the work. I'd like to know at least a handful of them anywhere in the country that I'd love to get them on and say, yeah, we're the owner. Not just pouring coffee, you're actually physically doing the work every day. That is gone. I don't see that anymore. But when I usually try to talk to people, I don't tell them who I am. I just say, listen, you know, I'm looking for somebody, say for siding or roofing, who would you recommend? Ryan, I, I didn't tell you this, but I want to ask you some questions, being a little bit more on the homeowner Shoot. side of it. What are you looking for? Because this is what homeowners were asking me. So I just want to get your perspective of it as somebody else. And I'd like to get any other of our listeners to come on and talk about this. Hiring a qualified contractor, you're getting a roof. What's the first thing you would look for? Like, how would you go about it? Educate our listeners on what you would do being a novice. Well, I wouldn't go online to find some, uh, get a name or whatever. Why? Uh, because they probably pay for the positions they get online, right? So why would I want to do that? What I would do is check my neighbors and people I know real well. I'd want to know what they thought of the contractor and what they thought of the job, okay? And then I would probably get to three contractors and then check them out thoroughly. Before I even ask them to bid on anything, I would tell them, you know, what I had in mind. I'd ask them for references of jobs that they finished maybe five years ago. Okay. See if people were still happy with it. Ask them roughly how long it would take. Just give me a rough, rough idea of what it's going to cost. And then from there, I would have probably two of the three give me bids, specific bids, line item by, by line item, and be very specific and give me an end date. Give me an end date that factors in the supply chain problems because I don't want a lot of stuff sitting on my lawn or whatever for three weeks, four weeks, a month. Shoot straight with me. When we talk about roofing and people are recommending roofing, most of the time people are like, well, they were fast and they clean up. I, I get that. But what about the job? Did you see if the job was done correctly? What, what well, do you mean? in my experience, they don't always clean up very well. When I used to do roofing back years ago, I, I mean, it took me a little bit more time. But what I did is I actually took the shingles, ripped them off, and the dumpster was in the driveway. I threw them straight in the dumpster. Today, it's an all-new ballgame because it was just a small crew that we had. And when I started, I just wanted to make sure that the job, and everybody knows how anal we are, I wanted that job clean because there's a lot of nails that are dropping down. So all it is today nails is that- Nails can flatten tires, right? Yeah, they can. Yeah, Or what if somebody steps on them? So there's a lot of issues that I try to minimize. And that's what I did back then. But now today there's a crew of 30 of them that come out. They put tarps up, they hang it right above the gutter and they just throw it down. And there's two guys that are cleaning up it the whole time. And then the next five, six, seven, eight guys are installing the- It sounds like a shooting range when they start with those guns. Oh yeah. Bam, 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 bam. Right. I used to call them the sunrise because the nails were hot tip galvanized and they were gold and they never hit in the line. Now, manufacturers over time have increased the nail fin line, which means it gives them a little bit more room for error because they're so quick the way they do it because they're trying to get it down so fast. 
But every time I talk to the people, like, all right, so they were quick. You're happy with the cleanup. So they must have did a pretty good job. Let's talk about the job itself. How's the flashing? Did they replace it? Did they put the ice shield up? They're, they're like, well, excuse me? That's the most important thing I want to talk to you about. You don't know anything about it, but you're still referring somebody? Well, that's the other thing. I would continue by saying I would study it and what a good roof is supposed to be. Then I would insist that the contractor, everybody has a cell phone today. They're probably up there talking on the cell phones half the time anyway. Give me pictures of everything that you're doing on the roof. When you're done working for the day, send me the pictures. I want to see the pictures. I'm not going up there. And that's good for your job. But how about this for, say, something in the future? You're going to hire, say, a roofer. You surprise him. Hey, look, you're going to do the job. Uh, we talked about it's in the contract. But what I'm going to do is I want to play a surprise visit. I don't need to go on the people's property. But when your guys are working, I'm going to give you a call or a text when you start the job. So if it's like, say, 8 in the morning, they're going to be there. I'm going to text you. I want that address, say, that morning, something local that you're close that I can go look at it. So we can surprise to check to see that they are replacing the flash and that the homeowners maybe uh, were asked for the option of ice shield done correctly. Yeah, the problem not is, if you don't have pictures, the average homeowner isn't going to know whether flashing was replaced or it wasn't. I mean, if they've got the shingles down and the, and the flashing wasn't replaced, how are you going to know? You got, they have to take pictures of every step. In the right, way. but they could be showing you pictures of jobs they did, maybe three jobs where they replaced the flashing because it was so bad that they had to replace it. But a lot of the times they don't. The jobs I've seen, I don't see flashing replaced. They leave it up there. If you, I even had one on social media. The guy put up, hey, look at us. Use our roofing. You still see the old flashing. It was all bent up and twisted. Well, I, I would have the picture thing in the contract. Oh, well, absolutely. But it's knowing that they are going to do it. So in that surprise visit, because 99% of the roofs that I've physically, physically seen around here are still done wrong. They leave the old flashing thinking you could do that. Listen, if it's in your contract saying it's replacing flashing, then guess what? Replace the flashing. Andy Roofer is going to tell you the number one issue is the flashing if you have a problem. It's not the shingles. Shingles don't really leak too well if it's mm -hmm. properly installed. But then the ice shield we talked about several times, which is the winter time that could happen. We try to minimize that. But that's the thing, all these shortcuts that the people are making. So how do you know what you're getting? So I'll give you another example. Um, you know, we talk about fully insured. You ever see licensed and fully insured? What do you think that means? <laughs> Probably means $50,000 in liability insurance and maybe workers' comp. Yeah. So I was at a couple of supply stores, and I just asked a couple of them, said, I'm a homeowner. I said, hey, I, I was walking, and I saw on the side of your truck, it said fully insured. So I'm looking to use, I'm looking for, say, a guy that's doing the exteriors. What uh, does that mean? Yeah. Well, I said, it includes workman's comp, right? You have a policy, and you can show me. Oh, yeah, we do. I said, well, great, because then I'm going to ask for your employees. to Just show me a copy of the W-2 along with that workman's comp policy that they're getting paid as a workman's comp and a paid employee. Well, we don't want to do that. I'm like, well, cross out the names. Just let me see that they're getting paid yeah, that just way. just black out the names. Nope, nobody wants to, because they're lying. Because they don't have it. Correct. Yeah. That's it. So show me the policy that you have. And I don't want a policy, like if you sign in, say, June, and uh, June 3rd, they're, they're getting new workman's comp policy. I want to see that policy that's already in effect, and I want to be able to talk to your insurance agent to make sure that that policy is effective. Nobody has that. And that's what I was asking. I'm just... Go around asking people. I don't want to tell them. I'm just starting to ask questions to see what people are thinking. And it's amazing how lost even the experts are to ask certain questions. Because if you don't ask these questions, you, the homeowner, my complaint to you, the homeowner, is that why are you complaining to me that you're having problems? Because you didn't ask the questions from the beginning. You said you got a qualified contractor. He didn't replace your flashing. Why are you complaining? Well, the other thing is uh, to, get, to get to the workers' comp and liability insurance thing. We did a show a couple weeks back. Anybody who doesn't understand that whole subject matter area, they want to go back and check out the show. You can just go to our archive, either on Apple or on newpodcity.com, and uh, search for that show. It's easy to find because we do write-ups on all our shows, so you don't have to go listen to everything. You can read the write-up and go right at that show. You do a nice job with those write-ups too, Ron. That's all Ron, oh, by the way. You. If people know me, you're not getting me to write that up. But here's another question. Now, we talked about with pricing. Everybody's about, hey, listen, we're going to get the three bids, and we'll probably go with the middle. You don't want to go with the cheapest. You don't want to go with the most expensive. Well, why do you want to go with the middle? Do you do that when you're looking for pricing, say, on anything you're doing? Let's well, go to siding. I, I, would, I would probably normally just throw out the, the low-end bid, figuring it's going to be project creep and it's going to keep, you know, keep creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. The high-end is probably inflated nine times out of ten. So I would, I would probably go with the middle. Well, how about this fact? So I, the last yeah, three siding other, jobs. other things considered, too. Yeah. Well, I, so I, it was funny because the last three siding jobs, people know me in this area being so exclusive with siding, that's why they use us. I've been the cheapest. 
And I said, well, I'm the one doing the work, so I don't sub out. So let's talk about why you would go with the, the middle over me. Well, well, we wouldn't. And I said, well, that's the next question we're going to lead into. You're getting me physically. Now, look, that's probably an anomaly. See, that's why I say other thing considered. Yeah. I mean, uh, the middle wouldn't be my automatic choice. Other things considered. So there's a lot more information that you're going to have to absorb to figure out who you're really going to use. Sure, absolutely. So pricing's not so much a main factor depending on what you're going to be purchasing. Nobody really rolls into that. If I gave you, listen, to my listeners and you, Ron, if I gave you an estimate for siding and you opened that estimate up and I mailed it to you, what's the first thing you're looking at? On that entire estimate, what's the first thing you look at? Well, most people would look at the price. I would look at the line items. Okay. That's what we try <laughs> to shoot for. look at the line items. Well, people are like, well, we've got to really know about the price because we need to know what we're going to pay. But yeah, there, but there's a lot more than that. You see, it's a process because when you go out to buy a car, you make this leap of faith that the manufacturer did everything right. And you're not going to, you're not going to check to see if the carburetor's right or the, the wheels were put on right. It's not going to happen. But with every home improvement job there is, if you hire a contract, okay, every job is a custom job in essence. Correct. It's a custom job. So you, you really help yourself if you study what is supposed to be great. You know, what, what does a good job consist of or a great job consist of? And then you have that contractor document that as he goes down the line. And you have it put in the contract, too, because it is a custom job. You can't make a leap of faith that your roof or whatever the heck it is, siding, is going to end up looking fantastic and not cause you problems. You have to be a student of that project. Absolutely. That's what I, that's yeah. what I advise people to do. Well, to, that's see, what I do myself. When we talk about like the contractors today, and I, I know you and I talked about this, it's one of the things I always say to people, that, again, salesmen and subs, Who's the one physically doing the work? That's why I said it's the art of contracting today is gone because the art is what I like to do. I like to paint the picture myself. So my hands are the ones that are going to be physically doing the work. Dave and I are doing the work. So if that's happening, what are you purchasing with that contractor? So you ask one of the questions. You need to know. Three criteria. Number one, what are you paying for? What's the method of application? This is number two. Number three, who's doing the work? If you have a, a great name, you have great product you're putting in, but you get these subs that are slobs and are, and are horrible and they're making shortcuts, you're probably not going to be happy. But you didn't ask that question. So I want to know who who's physically doing the work. Who's going to be the one installing the work? You know, is the owner going to be there? Look, I'm not telling everybody that owners have to be there is doing there the work. Is there a QC component too? And a QC doesn't mean showing up with a cup of coffee, tell a couple stories and leave. You've got to make sure that the, the process, and especially with siding or roofing, that the, the underlayment's done correctly. Yep. Siding is cosmetic, I tell everybody. If being cosmetic, if you don't hire the right people that do a segment that the underlayment is done correctly, the windows are flashed correctly, you're going to have a problem. The only way to fix it, and this is what I love about with contractors come out and fix it, they put silicone around it or a caulk around it, think it's going to be fixed. Well, it's more of an internal problem, not a caulking problem, because if it does solve it for a temporary, because that is what it is, you're going to have that problem again once that caulk dries out or breaks away. So why not do it correctly from the beginning? But when people say, Kevin, that, that costs more money, I'm like, well, yeah, but you don't have problems. I don't have problems because we do it this way. I want you to call me back in 40 years to redo it again, say new siding or no windows. That's what I'm looking to do, not just say, I got a problem and fix it. Not a month later. That's why in 1996, I, I got rid of all the sub crews and I just went doing the work myself because I don't want these problems. But it's just trying to get to understanding for these homeowners today, if you're going to hire somebody, you better start asking a lot of good questions because- if you don't, you're going to be on the horror story, and that's going to be one of the biggest don't complaints. Don't want to do that. Kev, you got a doozer of a horror story this week, didn't you? You could, could have burned the house down, right? That's, yeah, that's what we found out. So we, here's what happens. You know, when we're doing a job, it makes it very easy because we're stripping everything apart. Everything's getting stripped apart down to the, the studs, flooring, so we can see everything. Well, it, it, it's amazing to see how in people's mind, the contractor's mind, that prior to the work that we did before we got there, maybe five, 10 years ago, how their mind works. Did and they know who did it or they bought the house? And they, these homeowners bought faith, the house right? that way. And yeah. so we got the cabinets out, stripped everything out. Uh, some of the wiring was a little hokey, but we, we're okay with that. We see that it's normal. Everybody thinks they're a contractor, especially an electrician, and they're not. So... As we started ripping a little bit further, Dave's now ripping down the drywall. And he goes, I hear this probably from 10 feet away. I was on the other side. I hear, you got to be kidding me. So there was a box that was hidden behind the wall that was still active. It still was hot. 
So as we're standing there, as he pulls and the, the sheet of drywall, the didn't know it was there. Nobody knew it was nobody there. It was covered it was up there. with a backsplash. Okay. So they just covered it straight over. Never pulled the wires. Never pulled anything out. So it would be a dedicated line that was pulled and is deleted yeah. now. So as we stood there for maybe five feet away, of course, you know, me needing glasses. I'm like, ah, oh, they put spackle in it and just filled it in the box to try to stop it from getting exposed where uh, maybe the wires could touch or something that uh, could be possibly wrong. So that was one of the things. And again, I thought it was spackle. Was this a was this a um, footprint uh, kitchen, or did you have to expand it and into the no, dining room? A, or the, no, just, this is just an ex- existing, existing footprint. Existing, okay. but it was redone prior to this. So the setup of this job was it was done maybe about fifteen years ago mm-hmm. with the home owner boot in. So now Dave's ripping out a little bit more driveway goes. So I'm glad I didn't use the multi tool for this. Now what a multi tool is? It's a small reciprocating saw. It goes in the hands oh. about an inch and a half. It would, been all, it would have been all over. Wonders yeah. of the world. Yeah. So all we were doing is we had a stop point from one room to the other, and we used uh, this to cut drywall. Now, right. we're not going in that far, so if we are coming across, say, a wire that's close to the built into the joist, there's a plate that goes across it, so we'll never be able to cut it. So he was lucky enough to stop it, and then he looked at it and said, well, what is this bump in it? So what this electrical contractor or homeowner, whatever one it was, was notching out the drywall and just running a new wire back to the panel that way and then dropped into the wall instead of ripping the drywall out, drilling it through the, the ceiling joist, which has, has a two by 12, which he had plenty of room and he still had to cut the drywall out. So Maybe what's the difference? It wasn't there? an electrician who did the job. Well, it gets worse. Now we're ripping out a little bit more over the refrigerator and Dave is like, you gotta be kidding me. How did this house not burn down? So what it was, was there was, there were lights that were put in. So every one of the lights has to be wired while well, they're in boxes. They come with the boxes right there. Well, they weren't wired in the boxes. They were wired outside the box. And they were open splices, steel and neutrals. There were no wire nuts I can't, I can't on the hot lines. I imagine an electrician, a certified electrician would do something. Oh, I've like seen that. a couple of them before. Everybody, see, electrician's a little bit more of a skilled because you got to think of this. And this is what our listeners should really can concentrate with is that when you're hiring somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, say you're moving in 10 years or five years, think about this, that electrical problem, which could set your house on fire and which has in the past, you're given that problem to, to the next else. homeowner. To somebody else. They could have a family. Yeah, they could have yeah. the kids in there. You could absolutely kill these people by doing something this wrong. You do not want to mess with an electric. You want to hire a professional. This is not a do-it-yourselfer. This was something that came in where somebody ran some wiring somewhat in a way that was, this was so negligent. This had to be a do-it-yourselfer, right? Well, you know what? It's As, as time's going, it's in the past year or two with COVID, all these new contractors coming in, they're contractors that think they can do everything. And, and as we talked yeah, about on the show, this obviously was done a long time ago. Right? This was done, I think it was 12 years ago. He said yeah. the kitchen was redone and he wanted to change some things up. The kitchen was, it was cheap cabinets. When you have cheap cabinets, they're going to fall apart within five to 10 years. Right. You got to redo it again. So that's why you want to spend the money in the beginning. Makes sense. So as we got done and I literally put my hand next to that one stud that we talked about that had spackle in it. Now, again, I, I know I need glasses and I can't see too well. And I put my thumb over it. It wasn't spackle. It was a paper towel. Now, probably one of those non-flammable paper towels but they put a paper towel in a box with no wires i don't know how this thing didn't catch on fire yeah, i have no clue it's absolutely amazing. so i said leave it because the homeowner saw it the one day because we had the electrician coming in to rip all the wires out and redo everything so when the electrician showed up i said what do you think of that he goes oh you got to be kidding me we didn't know how this thing didn't catch on fire there was multiple areas that were splices in the walls that we didn't even know about that weren't even tied off correctly now, for our listeners, code is, this is the most important thing. The most important thing, code is, if you need to splice, there are splice kits, and if you have to splice somewhere in the wall, you can still keep it in the box, and then you put a blank plate over it. And that blank, the reason why that blank plate is there, if you need access to that, there has to be an availability to access that splice. So it's just pulling the plate cover off. So you know, if you have an outlet, now it looks like a blank plate. Mm-hmm. You just can't cover it up and leave it. And that's what we found throughout the entire job. And from there, it made our job a little bit easier because we just stripped everything back to the home runs. Home runs are where that dedicated wire is coming out, gets to the kitchen, and then it splices off to, say, outlets or switches that are running some lights, depending on what you have. And then we do the home runs for each individual appliance. So, you know, when you're blowing, drying your hair and somebody's running the microwave and they both go off, this eliminates that. Eliminates that, yeah. So it's just yeah. so much crappy work that I just, you, you feel bad because the homeowner, you, you tell him, hey, listen, by the way. Well, he's, he's, he's fortunate that he had his kitchen redone and his house could have burned down. So what was his reaction to all of this? It, it, same reaction as everybody's reaction. I can't believe that people would actually hire somebody to yeah. do something this bad 
and say, hey, yeah, you know what? The guy was cheap. We didn't care. We're moving in a couple of years, and we don't care about the people behind us. So, Or maybe they weren't moving in a couple of years, and they, they didn't know what they were looking you're at. You're sure rolling the dice for a, something not without checking it. Here's the thing. We just got the inspections before I came here to the studio today. So we had our electrical inspections and the building inspector come out to look at our work. This is one of the reasons why you get in a permit for everything, because you can get all this inspected. My guess makes, is there was no permit in this case. Oh, no, they, they, he would have to be either blind or I, paid off for this because it was that bad. And the pictures will be on our social media feed, so you'll get to see every one of them. What I'm talking about, you'll see it in the feed. Because I'm not making this stuff up. Here are the pictures. And I had to show the inspector, here's what we ripped out. Yes, get this. Anybody who's got like a, um, not a vintage house, but a house that was built in the 70s, 80s, okay, how can they be sure that the wiring in that house is done according to Hoyle? How can they be sure? You can't. You well, can't. Isn't there a, can, you do, can you do it with infrared or anything? Nope. Can't do it. Yeah, most of the big complaints that people always talk about, I, hey, I bought a house and the home inspector couldn't find all these electrical problems. Well, I said, it doesn't have x-ray vision. He can't see through the drywall. It's based on having a good contractor get a permit to do a job. I would feel comfortable about it. So you really shouldn't be asking about a home inspector saying to check some work like that. You should be checking that if there is a newer kitchen, Go back to the township building, see if they pulled a permit for that. So then you know it's done correctly. How about that one for you? There's your infrared. And if you buy a house that's older, uh, not necessarily a uh, like a developer's house, okay, like Toll Brothers or Pulte or something like that, is it should it be standard operating procedure for somebody to go to the township and see if uh, the work that was told to them, whether a kitchen was redone, a bathroom was done, was done properly and a permit was pulled? Should that be the first step? For homeowners, yes, that's what they should be looking for when buying a house. There's a lot more just buying a house than just getting an inspection. We can't see what's behind the walls, even as a contractor. I can't see what's under there without ripping it out. And this is what we found. You usually get one or two problems that's normal. This was every piece of wire this guy touched. It was it So was then if you, want to, if you want to be safe about the house, we want to be safe about the house, is that the most logical thing to do? Go back and check the permits. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in the township that we're working in right now, if you have a newer house and you're selling the house and it's say like six years old and there's a basement and in the permit, there was no permit ever applied for a basement to be redone after the house was had its CO certificate of occupancy, they're going to come in and make you redo everything. So it's not that you have a little bit of fix here. You're basically ripping this basement out for them to check the plumbing, check Crazy. the wiring, check the mechanical, check the fire stopping to make sure everything's done. Crazy so stuff. the amount of money you're going to spend now, which is a great implement because I'm not doing no basement without getting a permit because I don't want my name on that. And when people say getting a permit is so difficult, what is it? You fill some paperwork out because I've been and in the township for years. They're expensive too. It's like maybe 200 bucks. Yeah, they could be anywhere from 700 to to $1,000. Oh, can they? Okay. Yeah, they're a little bit more money, but you're ensuring the safety of the homeowner that the job's getting done correctly. How many jobs have we done talking about electric, people cutting headers out, structures could be falling down on people. Imagine having your son or daughter playing in a room and the next thing you know the thing falls down the whole wall falls down on them but in your experience how many people have done what we're suggesting they do the the, the owner of this house obviously did not do that no okay because it would have picked it up correct right? now the new homeowner's in the house and he's getting a permit because I, I apply for permits for all these jobs if i'm moving electric bearing walls i'm taking your plumbing and moving it it all needs to be inspected it's so easy to get a permit you do the job right. Even if you're doing structure, I don't have to worry about that because I give it to my architect. No, I'm talking about going back. If you bought a house and you don't know what's in behind the walls, the best thing to do is go back and check the permits. Right. right. And if you don't have that permit pulled, you're rolling the dice at that point. Unless you know that you're going to be uh, buying the house and saying, hey, listen, we really don't know. We're going to start ripping this place apart, putting a kitchen in, and we know we're ripping it out. I'm going to feel a little bit safer about that. But if... Nothing has been permit pulled, and you have a completely renovated house. That's a red flag right there. And a home inspector will not, and this is for home inspector, will not be able to see what's behind the wall. Right, of course. They're going to get the obvious that's there. Inspectors can't look and see if there's there's mold technically on there without prying into the wall and putting an MVO C test in or uh, seeing if the windows are flashed. They can't see all that. So that's why I even tell people today, if you really want to save yourself from future problems, get a permit document it. You have a cell phone. Take right. a picture of your the wiring is done, the flashing done around the windows. Just take that because it makes your life so much easier when you sell the house. More information you give to a new prospective buyer 
it's going to be a lot easier to sell the house when, say, hey, the economy turns and how the housing market is now. Well, let's say it's really slowed up. You're trying to sell the house. You've got days on the market three months. Well, especially if, you, if, especially if you're in a development, you've got multiple houses of your type going up at the same time, if you can document what you did, which I did, which I did, when you put my windows in and I have the outside of my house done, I got photos on everything, everything. I've got the materials that went into the drainage plane. So I can tell somebody, this is how my house was constructed. Right? Let's document it. So they can always yeah, go back to exactly. see that. Exactly. That little, that little bit that you're done, because here's why. You put more money into doing this. It's more money on what you did because you did it correctly. Think about all the harsters that we did on jobs that were done not correctly. Yeah. Why was that? Because the contractor is not experienced enough, and that's probably the whole industry today that I've seen personally. So they're charging a lot less of a price. Now, Homer's going, wow, you wouldn't believe the price I just got on my siding or my windows, and I, I, you can't beat that price. Why do you beat the price when you're not doing half the stuff you should be doing? <laughs> and then when do you find out a little bit later, well, the contractor's out of business, but he gave me a great price. Well, that great price is now going to cost you the same amount of money plus the additional money to do it over again. Why can't these, especially roofers, why can't you just offer services that give a homeowner complete protection? Nobody does it. And I'm trying to get roofers in the area. Every one of them I talk to say, listen, why don't you come on the show? Why don't we talk about what you did? But I want to go see the projects and I get to pick the projects that you did because I have the information here and I saw you doing this work. Can I just look at the workmanship to make sure you did it correctly? Well, I don't think I don't think roofing is any particular target for this. Uh, I think it's just across the board. Yeah, whether, everything. Whether it's electrical, plumbing. the electrical uh, really stuns me a little bit because their electrical and plumbing are two professions that need certification, don't they? Well, not really. Carpentry doesn't. Well, right? depending on the township, in our in Pennsylvania, there's only two townships that I know required a master plumber license in residential which is in Bucks and Montgomery. Which is a good thing. Which is great. Great thing. So that means the township I'm in, I'm a contractor. I cannot run plumbing at my house. Like when I did the addition, I had to fill out the permit, but I had to get my plumber to fill out the plumbing permit because he had to use his RCC card. It's a master plumber license. Absolutely. I didn't have that, so they know it's getting done right. But even still on the permit, I have to write on there, air arresters, uh, they have to put on there, no S-trap's got to be a P-trap. I have to put that on the permit because I know that but they're still requiring a master plumber to do the job. But today, everybody's cutting costs. Well, master plumbers, the reason why they're charging more money is because they went to schooling for this. You just don't apply for it and say, oh, well, look, that's, it's that's my point. That's 24 my hours point. later, I got my, my master plumber license. I don't have that. It, it takes time. My point. So this is what we have. Just be really sure you know what you're hiring. That's the best thing I could tell everybody. Know what you're getting if you do not know. Kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. Let's get on the show and we'll tell you the, the correct ways and the correct steps that you need to do, and it might cost more money, but your life's on Good the advice, line. Kev. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. We've been telling our listeners about Provia entry doors and windows, but there's a lot more to Provia, right, Kev? Yeah, you bet. Provia is your one source for professional class entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and incredible metal roofing. In fact, Provia makes all the product you need to create the perfect home exterior. They do it all the Provia way, the professional way. Hey, Kev, didn't you just use Provia siding and doors on your home? Yep, the look of my siding and doors have landed me a ton of work. Okay, so what sold you on Provia vinyl siding? The same that sells my customers. Provia Siding Reflex Heat protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup that ensures long-lasting color. Then there's a range of traditional, insulated, and decorative siding profiles, all with the look and feel of real wood. And a selection of now colors, including dark and bold hues. So, what's your take on Provia Manufactured Stone? The molds of Provia Stone are created from natural stones, giving it a quarried stone look with a great range of shapes and sizes. Customers love them, and the 10 choices of color palettes, Provia Stone goes with any environment. To see how Provia Siding and Stone combine to create the Provia Perfect Exterior with great curb appeal, visit Provia.com. Click on Designer Collections under the Design It tab. All right, Ron, now it's time for the feature segment. I believe we're staying in uh, Philadelphia from our hometown, correct? Yeah, staying in Philadelphia. There's a lot, of hap- a lot happening in Philadelphia. A lot been happening in Philadelphia over the last, I guess, 10 years. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Vaughn Buckley, as you know, from Volumetric, Volumetric Building Companies. Uh, and how he's employed his modular building technology in Philadelphia and other cities in the in the country as well as Europe. Now we're back in Philly speaking with Leo Adamando. Leo is the CEO of the ever-growing Philadelphia-based Altera Property Group. Okay, Leo, welcome to your valuable home. Hey, 
there are really three 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 segments to your business, right? Can you get into the focus of the Altera Property Group? There's APG Living, a company that manages your apartment communities, and finally there's Altera iOS. So what first of all is what what is iOS? What does iOS do? Sure. iOS is short for industrial outdoor storage, not mm-hmm. to be uh, confused with the Mac operating system. We use a big eye, not a little eye. Uh, and it's just a fancy name for low density industrial real estate that is uh, used by various companies in transportation, logistics, building materials, and other infrastructure type of, of businesses to store heavy machinery, trucks, trailers, shipping containers, um, rental equipment, cranes, building materials, and other things which don't need to be inside, shouldn't be inside, but require a lot of stabilized land around generally a repair type building, um, you know, for the operations of these businesses. We own this across 30 states, uh, over 175 properties. We're actually the largest owner of this particular kind of industrial um, in the country. And it's a business that we sort of, I'd say, tripped into uh, over six years ago and, and have really, um, you know, grown substantially since then. Yeah, I was, I was, um, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I was like, how did you get into that? Because we're really going to get into your core business, which is uh, building uh, rental units and uh, and uh, renovating uh, older buildings. Uh, so, how you just tripped into that business or what? Yeah, so it actually it, it was it, it was a byproduct of a relationship that we had um, as part of our multifamily development business. So. Um, in that business, we had over the years hired a bunch of construction cranes for our, for our projects, and we locally uh, used a company called um, Maxim Amquip. Amquip's the local subsidiary of Maxim. Maxim's the largest crane company in the world, actually. Right. Yeah. And the uh, that company, I became friendly with the former president, the now former president. Uh, he called me up and said, "Hey, I've been here for ten years, and and I know you don't, um, you know, necessarily do industrial real estate, but." I have a need to move my crane yard in Boston. I'm being evicted from my yard. There's a whole saga behind it. And I said, okay, well, I don't know anything about industrial real estate. And I haven't been to Boston, you know, in a few years since I finished grad school and I've never done a real estate deal there, but I'll try to help. So I went to Boston on several occasions. And at the end of all that, we moved them from the south end of Boston, actually the north end of Boston, uh, to um, to Revere, Mass. So basically moved them to Philadelphia and Ben Salem. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was a successful real estate transaction, and then we did the same thing for them uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Nashville, and Portland, Oregon. Uh, and eventually, we bought a bunch of real estate from them that they didn't really want to own anymore. At least, it, and, and they leased it back from us, and that made us that gave us more of a national footprint. That was sort of the end of 2018, uh, and then from there, we've we've done you know 150 additional deals with all manner of different tenants and size properties and, and geographies. So uh, it was it was kind of born out of the development side of our business, which is called Altera Property Group, or APG, or Altera for short. We're, we're one of the larger mixed-use um, developers in Philadelphia. We really focus on building um, mixed-use modular multifamily. Uh, we've done a number of these projects, uh, totaling well over, you know, I'd say $750 million of, of total development costs in that kind of, in that um, ground-up modular program, as you referenced earlier. Uh, we, we partner with biometric building companies. They provide the modular manufacturing, transports, and sitting, and in some cases, certain on-site finishing of the modules. Think of it as a big Lego project, right? You yeah, it sounds that way, tra- yeah. Mm-hmm. Traditional podium. Sometimes you have parking under the podium. Sometimes it's below grade. And once you get above that podium, which is either the beginning of the second or third floor, depending upon how much commercial you try to kind of squeeze in there, uh, you just start stacking these modules which kind of look like legos they come on trucks they get picked up by a crane they get dropped on site and we build projects that have as few as 110 modules and the most recent one that we finished at broad and spring garden had 365 modules uh, stacked up on top of each other it's actually the largest modular residential project ever done east of the mississippi um so that's when i say largest i mean in a in a in a non-high-rise setting so they have built a few in new york city that were done using non-combustible or non-combustible materials so metal frame modular but this is wood frame uh it's effectively no different than 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 wood framing an apartment building that you would just see it kind of go up slowly over time but uh, this erects very quickly um you know once you get out of the ground and get the the, the concrete or steel podium structure built you just stack the boxes on top you 
finish the hallways, connect all the mechanicals, skin the building. And I would say a project that would take traditionally between 18 and 36 months to build, depending upon the size, can be built in 12 to 22 to 24 months. And so the real savings in modular um, is in the time element. Um, and you get every bit the same amount of quality that you would if you built it, you know, conventional uh, in the field. Yeah, it's absolutely it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And that, that gets that gets your money working for you a lot faster then too, right? It does. Mm-hmm. It also means that you can start projects later and still, you know, kind of deliver them in time to, to coincide with the leasing season, which is sort of the spring, summer, and early fall. Okay. That particular building that you just mentioned, I think you said Broaden Spring Garden. I've seen pictures of that. That had to be logistically because that's a pretty busy intersection there, right? Yeah, the city was um, was cooperative and allowed us to close down Brandywine Street, which is the sort of small street at the north side of the building. Also, if you go on um, alterraproperty.com and you kind of click through and you go to level north which is the name of the project all of our projects that are modular are called level lvl laminate veneer lumber is an is one of the inputs into modular construction you know it's a sturdy um you know wood uh, construction beam that is employed in certain types of modular construction so we kind of riffed off that grid this brand called level or lvl so level north is the name of that project and we actually uh, built the project with two cranes positioned inside the donut of the building that were erected, used for, um, you know, excavation and then for erection uh, for building of the subterranean garage and the erection of the two floor podium. And those cranes then were used to actually lift these boxes from the street and put them in place. And once everything was done being erected, then the cranes were removed. So it was pretty cool, actually. You can see time lapse video of that on the website. Yeah, I, I've seen. I've, I've, I've seen. I checked it out. Checked it out. How many? I mean, you are a major force in development in Philadelphia right now, and probably a major force in modular construction in Philadelphia. How many units? How many? How many buildings have you done in say the past five to eight years? So I counted last night in preparation for our chat. Um, we have done just over fifty projects in Philadelphia that's a lot. since two thousand and five. Yeah, that's a lot. Of those. Uh, roughly 20 have been in the last five years. That's a lot. You really move a lot to of do building. that. But the, uh, that, I mean, the modular the modular construction actually facilitated that, didn't it? The the, the number of buildings you're that, that you can put up in that amount of time. Well, y- yes and no. What, what it did is it it shifted our primary focus from adaptive reuse to uh, you know mid rise large scale uh, ground up development, and we've done. We've completed now three large-scale modular projects from 145 units to 410 units, all with some commercial component. We're finishing up uh, a third, which is 175 units. We're um, we're in doing excavation and site work on a fourth, on a fifth, I should say, which is um, 270-something units. And then we're planning another, uh, we have another three in the planning stages. So. Most of our projects have not been um, modular, but the, the the larger new construction ones, except for one, which is at Broad in Washington called Lincoln Square, which was built using a more traditional type of construction, have definitely been modular. And here's the thing with real estate development. It's a really simple business if you really think about it. Only mm-hmm. three things matter. Number one, the cost of the land. Number two, the cost of the building, construction, if you will. And then number three, the rent. And if those three things don't exist in an economic equilibrium that attracts capital, okay, then you don't have a business. And so for many years, um, developers in Philadelphia have struggled with the, the, you know, the, the input costs, high land costs, high construction costs, and rents that just didn't really justify the, uh, the risk and the investment. So what we have done over the years is by doing adaptive reuse and using historic tax credits and being very efficient in sort of how we design and construct things, we're able to bring the construction costs down and squeeze a little bit more rent out of our projects by making very efficient small units. Okay. As the stock of old buildings in good locations began to dwindle, we began looking for different ways to sort of solve the same um, equation. And so we settled on modular. And so through modular, we're again able to pay market for land, and we can build 
combination of more cheaply and quicker, but primarily more, more quickly. And that provides us with, you know, kind of a cost advantage. And then within modular, we've been able to design units that are very efficient. So we're also able to squeeze a bit more rent per square foot out of your typical, you know, typical building because they're very efficient in terms of the net to gross and also the usability of the net, which is what's in the apartments themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how we, that's how we sort of came to modular. And you know, we've done several projects now and, you know, eventually we'll do some projects outside of Philadelphia modular. And it's really quite fascinating just in terms of the, um, in terms of the inner workings of that business and some of the supply chain issues that exist that are more unique to modular than conventional construction and um you know some of the other kind of challenges around financing uh and around permitting because in pennsylvania modular construction is actually governed by the industrial housing code so mm. the boxes are actually inspected at the factory by a third-party licensed pennsylvania inspector and so when they come to philadelphia for example um the the building inspectors they actually don't have the right to go inside the boxes because the boxes themselves, the apartments in the boxes have already been fully inspected. Been by, by inspected. A state. Yeah. Right. So that creates a little bit of, you know, friction on the job site with the inspections. Like what are they inspecting? What are they not inspecting? Um, you know, and in a place that is as parochial as Philadelphia, we had to sort of um, work with the building department, L and I is what it's called here, licenses and inspections to get them comfortable with, um, you know, with the overall type of construction and quality of it. How about the permitting process with modular versus uh, classic construction? Is that is that it's got to be different in some degree, right? Yeah. So you're pulling basically. Uh, typically, you'll pull a uh, a foundation and excavation permit, and then you'll pull a building permit. But the building right. permit will will effectively cover um, at that point in time the entire building. Okay, in a traditional construction setting. When you go to permit modular, you're still doing the same foundation excavation permit. Then you're getting a state sign-off permit, permit and sign-off for the modules. Then you're getting a building permit in Philadelphia, but you have to first have gotten the state sign-off on the modular component to it, so that you can then get the building permit locally. But that building permit doesn't actually um, govern the residential units themselves uh, because those are governed under the state modular permit. So. It's a little tricky, but you know it's not rocket science. Nothing in, in real estate development is rocket science. Okay. Well, it seems that way um, to, to us. I mean, Kevin's usually used to doing like uh, onesies and twosies and home improvement and kitchens, baths, stuff like that, exteriors. But um, it's fascinating. I mean, the whole modular thing is absolutely fascinating. Is it? Is it? Have you gotten feedback from? Uh, people in your rental units, for instance, is it different? Is there a different feel to living in a modularly constructed uh, apartment, for instance? No, there there are only two um, there are only two things, and only certain people notice these things. One, they are quieter. The sound attenuation is superior, um, if for no other reason than you have you know eight to ten inch wall thicknesses between the apartments because those are also structural members mm -hmm. right that support the building mm -hmm. and so you naturally have more space and stuff uh, between you know different residential units so a little bit better sound attenuation and then if you're if you're paying attention and you and you look in certain apartments where you're bridging a couple of different boxes to build them build a two or three bedroom you'll notice that the wall thicknesses between, let's say, the living room and the bedrooms might be more than usual. And that's, you only really see it like at the door jam, right? You'll, where the door is mounted, you'll open up and rather than opening up and then you're, you're kind of walking in, it might be like a six or eight inch kind of wall that you're walking through mm -hmm. past the door. Right. Um, but you'd have to really be tuned into that, right? And understand that it was modular and then sort of say, okay, well, that must be the structural wall. And now I'm going from one box into another. But, to the untrained and un, um, you know, an imperceptive eye, it, there is no difference. <laughs> okay, right. And I, I, as I understand it from Von Vaughan, if you go up a certain height, I think it was over five stories. Was it five stories? Everything's got to be uh, metal framing members. Over eighty-five feet. Eighty-five um, feet. Yeah, over eighty-five feet, and you can't have more than five occupiable stories of combustible construction. So. At, at um, 510 North Broad, which is, um, you know, also known as um, also known as Level North, which we mentioned earlier, um, that has two floors of podium 
and then five floors of modular on top. Um, we couldn't have built one floor of podium and six floors of modular, right? So um, at at level at the next level, which is the second we built at, at 43rd and Chestnut, that one was um, one floor podium with retail and garage, and then one floor of additional podium where we actually built apartments in the field in a conventional way. And then on top of that, five stories of uh, wood frame modular. So there's a couple of nuances in terms of how high it can go mm-hmm. and how many stories you can have of the combustible construction. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it's gotta be great for rental with having the multi-use for the people inside there. You, you figure homeowners live in there, they got their own parking garage. Uh, I'm sure if you can rent to a uh, convenience store, they don't have to go anywhere. It's everything's self-contained inside that building, correct? Well, we really like when we can attract some sort of service value add retail to our projects. Okay, so um, having a full-service giant grocery store is obviously great amenity for the neighborhood and also for the building. In other projects, we have you know a combination of a grocery store and a Target, a liquor store, and a PetSmart. You know, and food offerings on site. And, you know, my mom lives in one of our projects where she doesn't really have to leave the property <laughs> to get anything she needs, right? <laughs> and that, um, you know, for some for some people, having that, you know, kind of proximate access to the services that they need, in addition to, the, to their apartment and the amenities in the building, is a real um, selling point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you just mentioned the, 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 the presence of retail. I have a two-bedroom, two-bath unit in Old Kensington, around 2nd and, um, and um, Oxford. And sure. it's interesting, retail hasn't come up that far. It's not too far from uh, Northern Liberties, but the retail hasn't come up that far. And I think it's an impediment to more development up that way because you need the stores there, right? You need the stores in the neighborhood, don't you? Well, it's the it's the classic chicken and the egg. What comes first, the density or the services, right? Mm-hmm. And in different parts of, of Philadelphia and different parts of the country and the world, um, one has followed the other and vice versa. So there are pockets of Philadelphia where having additional retail and commercial activity and offerings would certainly make it a more livable place, right? Exactly. More attractive place to live. Mm-hmm. Um and that's you know that's one of the things that developers struggle with because we want to bring that mixed use kind of commercial component with us but if there isn't enough existing traffic foot traffic residential density workers in the area then those retailers commercial tenants they can't they, they can't survive right and so this actually let's use the piazza as a great example that whole liberties walk in piazza right for yep. mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years the retailers struggled and tower investments subsidized those retailers for over a decade. And as more and more density has come into Northern Liberties around the Piazza, now all of a sudden there's enough foot traffic, daytime and nighttime traffic and density where those retailers can actually survive and they can pay real rent. So that's, that's a great example of how, you know, as real estate developers, sometimes you have to, you have to sort of subsidize the the retail, you know, commercial component so that enough of it is there so that people want to live there so you can get more folks to live there so then the retail can actually pay for itself. But it's a long road sometimes. Yeah, you're right. It's a good uh, good way to describe it, a chicken and egg situation. And and the chicken hasn't hasn't laid an egg yet in uh, in Kensington where yeah. I am. I mean there's no there's yeah, no retail. Well, you know, Kensington has has its own challenges. I mean, there's, you know, it was, uh, you know, the center of the opioid crisis in Philadelphia for many years. You have some crime issues. Um, You know, you have an evolving demographic up there. And I'm not surprised that second in Oxford, you know, you're still struggling for that kind of commercial vibrancy. But it'll come. It's just going to take time. Take time. Okay. All right. Good. I... I, I'm kind of thinking that you build most of your um, renovate most of your buildings and build most of your modular buildings to build to rent. Am I correct about that? Correct. We have not done a for sale project since 2006. Okay. So, so. yeah, we're strictly rental rental housing. Um, yeah, we don't we don't do for sale. 
Well, the rental market's got to be great right now. It's got to be uh, zooming because of uh, housing prices going up, not only here, but all over the country, right? For the moment, the Philadelphia apartment market is as strong as it's ever been, at least in my 18 years you know, in, the, in, this, in this market, in this business. Um, but it is not as strong uh, as, as places like Atlanta, Savannah, Nashville, Miami, I can name others, Denver. Um, but traditionally, the, you know, the blessing and the curse of Philadelphia, if you're in the real estate business, has been that what doesn't boom also doesn't bust. So it's been slow to grow in good times, but also pretty stable in down times. So, but overall, um, it is a um, it is a good time to own apartments in Philadelphia, and it is a more expensive time to be a tenant. No question about it. And part of that is because of the increase in the cost of everything that we're building. But part of that is just because the um, it's harder to access home ownership right now because of where home prices are and where interest rates are. As most people are, are you know, they're, they're borrowers. You know, when they go buy a house. Okay, well, so you wouldn't you wouldn't sell any of your units to like uh, investors, right? For the, who uh, who want to be uh, landlords, right? No, oh no, okay. we um, we certainly have our investors that are you know investors in our projects, mm-hmm. but we don't sell anything to individual investors. Gotcha. Um, U.S. U.S. construction, um, you know, for the last ten or fifteen years has, has made a living in town building townhomes that were each individually owned by an investor uh, and then they would rent and rent those out for the investors that was an interesting um you know business model that was very successful for both them and for their investors for many years i think the economics of that are more and more challenged today because land prices are very high and because um you can get so much more if you just sell that to an end user than you can if you sell it to an investor who then is looking for a rental income stream gotcha. so the build for rent townhome market in Philly um, was basically replaced by, by a for sale townhome boom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you also, yeah, you, you have a question. Building, yeah, because when, you, when you're thinking about building and getting into permits, I mean, that's something that's more, uh, as we talked about, how many levels of application you need from the state to sign off on the module. With you owning that building, you being the builder, uh, there's got to be some little clearance that it's got to be when, when Philadelphia looks at it, your name's on the, the ticket, which means you're building it, you're renting it. So you're not going to be building something where you can just try to get it sold and rent it out and uh, because that happened a lot in Philadelphia. So we're not the builder. Um, we're the developer. Yeah, the developer from mm-hmm. that line. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the local permits are pulled by uh, a third-party general contractor, and they're subject to um, every bit the inspection scrutiny that any other traditional – um, you know, project developer or contractor would be subject to. The only difference is that there's a different inspection that happens at the factory of what is from behind the, state. the walls in, inside the apartments. Right, right? that's going to be done by the state, state, correct? State license. Not it's not a state employee. It's it's a it's a third party that is registered and licensed with the state to do specific types of inspections. In this case, modular housing. Okay. Which I think, based on my experience in Philly, which I think would be a lot more thorough. And um, something you could really rely on, right? Then, then having it's the very, city do it's it. Ver- it's very thorough. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not saying it's more thorough than what the city does, but um, it's very thorough. Trust me when I tell you it's very thorough. They are in there regularly looking, you know, behind the walls, at the plumbing, at the electrical, you know, at the fire ratings. They are very scrutinous of what happens. Yeah, you got me feeling I, you know, I wish I would have bought a, a modularly constructed building versus the building that I bought. That's a, that's a story for another time. But uh, you also manage all your buildings too, right? Correct. So APG Living is the third. APG Living, yeah. And that, yeah, and that's our management company. We mm-hmm. manage about 2,500 apartments in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Mostly we own those apartments, but there are a handful that are we manage on behalf of friends of ours who – um, are also in the, and they own some apartments and just don't have the scale or the stomach for the apartment management business. It's a pretty thankless business. Um, you know, you get a lot more complaints and you get, um, you know, attaboys uh, from from tenants. Uh, and, but we strive at at every turn to be the best residential management company in Philadelphia. Uh, we have a great great team uh, at at APG Living and. 
you know, we've had a lot of people who've been with us for a long time who've kind of risen up from maintenance technicians and leasing agents to, you know, maintenance supervisors or, um, you know, regional managers, you know, overseeing teams of people leasing and managing apartments and, and maintaining them. So we have a really good management platform. And I think it's really a key part of our success because, you know, it's a one-stop shop. You know, we don't just build it. We also lease it up and we manage it. And we can continue to kind of be good stewards of our of our investments and our investors' capital. Now, do you manage the buildings that you renovate, not the modular constructed buildings, the buildings you renovate, you manage those as well? And, and do you yes. own those and rent those out as well? Yes. Okay. That's got to be a great selling feature when you go to rent. I mean, saying that you're the builder, you're everything all in one, that, that these renters are getting a better product. So I'm sure the complaints have to be less sounds than somebody else did. Sounds that way to me, yeah. Sounds that way to me. I mean, well, you-, you know, tenants don't really don't really look at it from that perspective. Um, but investors and lenders certainly do. So part mm-hmm. of our selling point to the financial community is you're investing with us and we are we – are, we found the ground, we entitled the ground, we put the plans together, we, we will hire and oversee a licensed general contractor. And if it's a modular, we'll buy the boxes from our affiliated factory. We will then lease the building up, we'll manage the building. Um, so we, we are you know, vertically integrated, save for the actual physical construction itself. And that is a selling point, but more on the investor and lender side than on the tenant side. Tenants look and say, who's the management company? And if you do good Yelp reviews and Google reviews, and we do. I noticed that that your buildings. I think I think this is correct. All your buildings are pet friendly. That's got to be a big feature today, right? It's something we've been doing for you know my 18 years in in this business. I feel very strongly that um, while I'm not a pet owner myself, that you know uh, pet owners are um, you know a category of renter that are incredibly loyal, um, and um, you know people should have a right you know to have a, a reasonable you know pet. So all of our buildings are pet friendly, always have been. Wherever we can build a little dog park on our on our rooftops, we do. We've got I don't know, that's great. Yeah, that's half great. a dozen of those, and um, and yeah, it is it is a good selling point. Um, you let's put it this way: you get a lot more tenants than you lose by being pet friendly. Yeah, I'll yeah bet you, it's I'll a bet lot you of do. the market. I yeah. bet you do. If you look at the pet market, just as it's uh, you know on its own. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. So, and a lot of young people have pets. You know, everybody's out walking their bulldog or their du- super doodle or whatever it's called. <laughs> it's uh, it's exactly. a very golden, very smart marketing move. Or, yeah, that's right. But double building, double doodle. Yeah. If you always think about from years ago to now, the building application, like for flooring today, you know, from twenty five years ago, it was all hardwoods or carpet, which was not very pet friendly. Now the products today right. are pet friendly, so it makes it a lot easier for when you have one renter leave, even if it was clean or not. Uh, moving in for another renter makes it a lot easier to get that place ready to go for rent, correct? Yeah, the advent of LVT flooring that that performs at a much higher standard than traditional uh, natural or engineered wood um, is much more difficult to damage and still has that aesthetic and richness and texture of real wood has been a game changer for, um, you know, for apartment development and specifically for the durability of the flooring in units with pets. Yeah, it's great. Great. Absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to ask you to put on your different hat. Now, you're an officer of the Philadelphia Building Industry Association, right? Yes. And you guys are very actively involved with the city in extending the 10-year tax abatement, which I, I think probably really f- fueled the building boom in Philadelphia. Um, and that's the reason I bought there. That's the reason I bought a rental unit there. Um How's that? How's that faring? How is it? Is it? Is it going to happen? Is it going to? Are you going to be able to extend it? Question number one. Question number two. What happens to the people who are running down the clock right now? Which I'm, I'm one of. Uh, I think I've got maybe, maybe a year left on mine. I'd have to go back and check my records. But what happens to those people versus if if, if it gets extended? Is that going to change the dynamics in the market at all? So the team of tax payment has been a, a significant contributor to the development boom in Philadelphia over the last 20 years, no doubt about it. Anybody who argues that um, is politically motivated and not um, factually or economically informed. I got um, you. Yeah. Okay. The tenure tax abatement uh, was, um, was lobbied for and uh, was sort of defended successfully by lots of people, including the BIA. Um, 
Last, I guess, 18 months ago, there was a compromise struck where it remained a 10-year abatement, but anything that was permitted after July 1st of 2021, the 10-year abatement was a, was stepped down 10% per year. So previous to, to that, it was 10-year exemption on taxes on all the improvements on the property. They could still raise your underlying um, land, uh, land assessment if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And now that 10-year exemption on the improvements is a 100% the first year, 90% the second year, and sort of so that the cities, the taxability of it and the tax burden ramps up over 10 years rather than just, you know, after 10 years, doing your tax bill goes up. Got it. I think okay. that's really good for, I think it's a really good compromise. I think it still gives, um, it still gives the kind of headline 10-year abatement um, marketing and, and most of the economic benefit of it because of the net present value. But at the same time, balances the city's need for tax revenues, and also from a, from an ownership perspective, it it it, in, it forces a bit of financial discipline in that your taxes go up a little bit each year, and so you're you're phasing in that tax burden, and people are assumably not being hit with sticker shock after ten years. Yeah, yeah, but that does all everything you just said does not apply to the people who are winding down on their abatement now, right? It does not. People who are winding down on their abatement, um, a lot of them are, are getting a very unpleasant surprise. There's no doubt about it. You know, mm -hmm. Their their um, underlying assessment is going up, and their oh, abatement yeah. is, go, is going away, and it's happening kind of like a one-two punch. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's look. That's going to have an impact at, on the at market. At some point isn't in time, the, 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 these abatements have to burn off, right? It's not a. It's not no taxes forever. Mm -hmm. So, I, I don't. I don't think it has a material impact though to be honest with you i mean if you're in your shoes you have one year left right yeah. so if someone is really super conscious and they're looking to you're looking to sell your two bedroom two bath and then they're looking between yours and a new one um look if they're priced the exact same they're going to buy the new one because they're going to have less tax burden for 10 years right right but if yours is priced in some sort of economically sensible way relative to the new one and that sort of makes up for the difference in the tax burden and the carry cost then you know, the playing field is more level. So I don't know that the, that the abatement creates any sort of unfairness or distortion um, at the end of its 10 year life. It's just sort of, it's part part of the bargain that you make when you buy something under a 10 year tax date. I got or, you. And that's why I was in Philadelphia in the first place. I mean, I got, so I've had, I've enjoyed the benefit of it now for, I, there was eight and a half years left on it when I bought the place. And uh, I've enjoyed that for, you know, all this time. So. It is what it is. You've done uh, work in Pittsburgh, too. Any plans to take your concept to other cities other than Pittsburgh and Philadelphia? We're working on it. Um, you know, it's a it's a precarious macroeconomic time right now. So yes. we, we we do plan on growing our develop our mixed use modular development business outside of Philadelphia. But we haven't quite figured out uh, what the next city where we'll build something um, that's, that kind of fits our, our development box will be. But we are working on it. Well, you mentioned a couple there that are really hot. We we were in Nashville. Kevin and I were in Nashville last year. Nashville is rocking right now. And oh, it's unbelievable! A lot of young people here, down crazy. there. A lot of young people down there. It's very. It's a very crowded city. I found it to be anyway. But um, uh, all the areas around Nashville too, and the small towns are really, really booming right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of activity in south of the Mason Dixon line. Um, and in other higher growth markets, you know, Nashville is a shining star, Atlanta, um, South Florida, tons of, of development in, in Austin, Dallas, Austin, Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Austin's another place, De absolutely. And you're Denver. mentioning a lot of people, a, a lot of areas with real big populations of young people. Yes. Yeah. Well, Leo, this has been fascinating. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for your insight. And uh, thank you for doing the good stuff you're doing in Philadelphia. Uh, how do people, what's your website so people can check you out? Um, www.alteraproperty.com, spelled A-L-T-E-R-R-A, -R and then the word property, singular, dot com. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. 
Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 